ahead. Look at your iPhone, your iPod, your computer, your MP3 player, whatever it is you're listening to this podcast on, and look at that cover image. Those two people there? Well, one of them's me. The other person is Beverly Washburn, who is the special guest on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. This is episode 116, and my name is Derek M. Cook. I'm your host and writer-producer of this show. I want to welcome you to the show, and I want to thank Joe Stuber, because once again, that man is responsible for setting up the interview that takes place in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I met Joe Stuber at Monster Bash, and we decided to do this Comic Book Central Monster Kid Radio meetup, crashing the bash kind of event, and, well, this interview is one of the results of that epic meeting. The last episode of Monster Kid Radio featured an interview with Joel Hodgson, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Well, that was also something that Joe set up. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not listening to his podcast over at Comic Book Central, which is comicbookcentral.net, or look it up on iTunes... You're missing out. The guy does a great show. He brings comic books to life. Actually, he brings the people who brings comic books to life to life on his podcast. So y'all should check that out. You know, when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's coming up here in a second. First, I want to direct you to our website, which is at monsterkidradio.net. That's where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Over there, we've got links to our Flickr album, our YouTube page, our Live 365 channel. There's there's also buttons to the Facebook group and a listing of every band and song that's appeared on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Normally, we open with a piece of surf music. This time around, we opened with a song called Where's Captain Kirk? It's by the Nick Adams. It appears on their album in the 25th century. You can find out more about them over at thenickadams.com or again, just follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Now, after the interview with Beverly Washburn, I'm going to come back on, and I'm going to open up a discussion. I'm going to ask you boys and girls, monster kids of all ages, for your opinion about a piece of news that broke earlier today, actually, as of this recording. By the time you hear this, I'm sure you've probably heard about it if you follow certain people on Facebook or read certain blogs, get involved in certain message boards. We'll talk about that at the end of this episode. But first, we're going to go ahead and do the interview with Beverly Washburn again. Thanks to Joe for setting it up. And of course, big thanks to Beverly Washburn for spending a little bit of time with us at Monster Bash so we can bring you this interview, which we're going to get to right after this. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. Sure. Why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Oh, the Monster Kid and Comic Book Central crash of Monster Bash continues uh, with our very special guest uh, today, Beverly Washburn. 
Thank you for joining us here today. Well, thank you for asking me, Joseph and Derek. (laughs) (laughs) We're having some fun here today. Let's mix it up a little bit with some comic book stuff, a little bit of monster stuff. But one thing I got to talk to you about is The Greatest Show on Earth uh, with Jimmy Stewart. I am a huge Jimmy Stewart fan. Yeah. So what was it? And this is Jimmy in the clown makeup, correct? Right. Okay. Yeah. So what was it like to not only work with Jimmy Stewart, but just to kind of see him in a different kind of light than we saw? When I did The Greatest Show on Earth, I was about eight years old. And so when you're that young, you have a completely different concept of who you're working with because you know, I was excited because I saw him as a clown, you know. And so it wasn't actually until I became an adult that I would look back and say, wow, you know, I got to work with Jimmy Stewart and be directed by Cecil B. DeMille. But when you're a child, you know, it doesn't have the same meaning. But he was very nice. And um, a very funny thing happened while we were shooting. We were doing the scene. My scene is where I'm in the grandstands and, you know, Jimmy Stewart comes up to me and he gives me a little balloon, like, you know, he makes it into a dog or something. And we have a, a little bit of dialogue. And so, as I said, Cecil B. DeMille is the director who, you know, of course is huge. So we're doing this scene and in the grandstands they had like all these extras and everything that are sitting there and there was a little boy sitting you know in the grandstands we're right in the middle of filming the scene and all of a sudden the mother of this little boy yells out cut (laughs) and everybody like turns him up well she took it upon herself to say cut because she thought that her little boy wasn't being seen on camera. So needless to say, Cecil B. DeMille about, oh my gosh. So they, um, of course, they... It's like one director you don't want to do this with. And so, of course, they immediately escorted her off along with her little boy, which is sad. But um, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think stuff like that happens, you know, that she would actually say cut, you know. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy's on set, though, too, when this is... Yeah. Well, everybody was... I mean, they were appalled. I mean, yeah. that does, you know, that's not supposed to happen. But yeah. looking back in retrospect, it was kind of funny, really, when you think about it, yeah. that she would do that. But Very uh, cool project to have on the resume. Uh, one of my personal favorites, and obviously we're talking Comic Book Central, it's Superman and the Mole Man. Um, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for guys. So, now, what's interesting is you watch this. This is what became – this is the movie. Yeah. Uh, the two-parter, movie. yeah. Right. But it became the pilot for the television right. series. Now, for those uh, watching this, and it's obviously on YouTube and everything, but you have an interesting role in this. And it's a very memorable role. It's not necessarily interacting with Superman, but tell our listeners where they can spot Yeah. If, if, for those of you ha- who have seen Superman in the moment, um, I'm the little girl. I'm in my bed. And I think I was about eight uh, or so at the time. And the little mole men climb in through the window. And then I see them and I, you know, say, who are you? And then we start talking. And, of course, they can't talk, but I'm talking to them. You and don't freak out. There's the no. two mole men coming in your uh, window. No. And you're like, hey, you want to play <laughs> ball or something? What did you say? What was it? It's like, something. To the, yeah. And so we're, like, playing like, ball back and forth. It's normal for this to happen. Right. And, so, and then the ball lights up or something. And yeah. it's, like, radioactive or whatever. And then the mother comes in and sees me with these two little freaky mole men and, and screams. And Mom that was, does not have the same reaction. No. In fact, one time I was at an autograph show and a guy came up to my table and he happened to see the still from Superman in the moment. And he basically said to me, um, he goes, you were the little girl in Superman in the moment? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, my gosh. He said, 
did they scare you? And I said, no, actually, you know, I thought they were really cute. And he goes, really? They scared the crap out of me. <laughs> me too. They're creepy. I know. They were pretty creepy. It's ama- yeah. And I love the scene because then Superman comes in and say, you know, he has to save the day. But I love that they had to add the line in that he's like the, all the townspeople are freaking out. And, and George Reeves comes out and he's like, the little girl is fine. Yeah, if, if you don't I, see it, I, I hear know. his mom scream. We don't know what happened to you. Like, is she dead? Or I what, know. You know. And what's really funny is, of course, you know, it, that was many, many moons ago when we did this. But they've come a long way with makeup and wardrobe and all that because they were mole men. They're supposed to be all covered like in hair. And you could almost see the zipper, you know, coming off the back <laughs> of their costume, yeah. you know. But, of course, nowadays everything is really high tech and stuff. Well, even but, mole men have to take bathroom breaks, right? Yeah, I, there I you go. So. But, uh, now, did you get to work with George Reeves at all? No, not in that, not in that. Right. And But for me, again, you know, I was very young. I didn't know who George Reeves was, you know, because I was like eight years old. But for me, having him on the set in his Superman costume, that was my thrill because I thought he really was Superman. Were you aware of the character? Like, had you read the comic books? Yeah, I was a big fan of Superman, of course. And um, so I thought he really was Superman. And then, ironically, it was very strange. About a month or two later, I got cast in a TV show. And it was, I think it was for... Four Star Playhouse or whatever it was and one of those, you know, anthology things. And it was with Edmund Gwynn and Anita Louise and then Tommy Reddick, who, you know, was Jeff on um, Lassie. He and I played brother and sister. And we were supposed to be um, the children of George Reeves and Anita Louise. Well, it was very confusing to me because on the set, he was dressed, you know, just as you know, the father, he had a mustache and everything. And um, and so some of the crew were joking around and they were calling him Superman. And I didn't get that because I'm thinking, what do you mean? How could he be Superman? And he's like my dad on the show. I was like very confused. So I asked my mother, like, why are they calling him Superman? You know, because I was confused. So anyway, she, <laughs> my mother was very sweet. She told me that he really was Superman and that he was just play acting to be my father in this TV show. <laughs> and I bought it. I mean, I never claimed to be a bright child. But anyway, so anyway, she it was the fun. illusion alive. Yeah. So that nice. was exciting for me. Good on I, you, Mom. I know. So I thought he really was Superman. So yeah. that was cool. Had you ever get a chance to talk to him or relate to him on any level of like what he felt about the character? I mean, you had no, well, you know, did you hear him any discussions or anything? You know, when you're only eight years old, you're on a different level with, you know, the adults because they don't talk to kids like they would to adults, you know. Especially back in the day, probably. Yeah. But, I mean, he was always very, very sweet to me. He was a really nice man. And um, when I did Superman in the moment, it was Phyllis Coates who played Lois Lane. And then Noel Neal, of course, you know, everybody knows as well. And so I had done a couple of Superman conventions, and I got to meet both of them, lovely ladies, both of them. And on separate occasions, I asked each of them, like, what they thought really happened, because, you know, there was so much controversy. And even in the movie, they kind of left it hanging. It's like you make your own, you know, decision. And I asked them both, and both of them, at, on you know, separate occasions, said there is no way that he would have taken his own life. He was getting ready to do another show, and they said it definitely had to be murder, you know, and that was their take on it. Yeah, he was a wonderful man, and I look back, and I feel very blessed that 
I got to work with so many of the people that I did because as a child, I didn't appreciate it the way that I did when I became an adult and looked back and thought, wow, I was directed by Cecil B. DeMille and George Stevens and Frank Capra, you know. But as a child, it doesn't really mean anything, you know. Star Trek. You were in the original series. I, yeah, I want to talk about that too. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> this is this is kind of crosses over here. Um, you weren't wearing a red shirt. I know, and I died. That is so not fair. Yeah, I this know. is in the episode The Deadly Years. <laughs> uh, you played Lieutenant Arlene Galway. Mm-hmm. What do we not know about Lieutenant Arlene Galway? <laughs> we didn't get well, to know her very long, but no, she got No, I know. Eyes. It was just, you know, I have to say, I mean, uh, the Star Trek fans are incredible because they know every every episode they know every character they know the dialogue and and everything and because i basically had just a pretty small role on that i was in one episode as you said the deadly years and we first you know land and i'm part of the crew and i was the youngest one and um and then i contract this disease where you rapidly age so i died of old age and then the uh, the rest of the crew they get the same thing and they're starting to age and then Chekhov found the cure but too late for me darn <laughs> so but anyway when I went on the audition for that I, I have to be honest I wasn't really familiar with Star Trek I hadn't watched it so I didn't really know but you know as an actor you you know you always want every role you go out for so I was hoping to get the part but I didn't really know too much about Star Trek when I went on the interview one of the questions they asked me before they had me read for the role was if I was claustrophobic because in the scene where I die, when I come in and, you know, I croak in Captain Kirk's arms, they had to make me up. And so what they did is they had to make a plaster cast of my face and I had to breathe through a straw for four and a half hours while it dried. And then from the plaster cast, then they made a rubber mask and then they put the makeup on and the, you know, the wig and all that. So they asked me if I was claustrophobic, and, you know, I said no, that I wasn't. And then I had to read for the role, and then I got the part, which I was really thrilled. But I never knew if I got the part because they liked my reading or just because I wasn't claustrophobic, because not everybody, I guess, would like to do that. And it was pretty tedious. It took, like, four and a half hours to sit there and do all this makeup, and then it was, like, another hour and a half to take it off. And I remember at one show, a a fan came up and was talking about it. And they said, how long did it take you to do that makeup? And I said, about the same time as it takes me now. It's like, (laughs) like, but um, anyway, it it was fun. And I had no idea back then, you know, that all these years later, it would be huge. It's like all over the well, it's one of the classic world. episodes. I mean, you sure. think about the series. Well, I mean, thank you. Yeah, I've episodes. had a lot of people say that that was one of their favorite episodes, oh, yeah. but which so I'm very grateful to have been a part of it. I wanted to ask you, um, your character has a very cute, severe haircut. Was that something that you came to the audition no. with, or did they no. cut your hair that way? No, actually, um, what happened is... I had just done uh, a movie. In fact, some people will know me from Spider Baby, which is, you know, the Lon Chaney thing when... Um, oh, we're, we're getting there. Okay. And so Jack Hill, who was the producer and, you know, writer, director of that, had cast me in a movie called Pit Stop, which was with Sid Haig, that a lot of people know Sid Haig, and Brian Donlevy, and Ellen Burstyn, who at the time she went by the name of Ellen McRae. It was before she was famous. And and so anyway, in Pit Stop, I was always blonde. And I, you know, as a child, I was blonde. And as an adult, I was blonde. 
And so I played opposite um, a guy named Dick Davalos. And Dick Davalos was in East of Eden with James Dean and everything. Well, Dick and I both had the same color hair, and I had long blonde hair. So Jack thought, since there's a scene that's, you know, like we're dating, that it would look better if we didn't have the same color hair. So being that I was the woman, he asked me if I would mind dyeing my hair a different color. So I said, no, that would be fine. So they sent me to some salon in Beverly Hills. But now this was like a 1,000 years ago. So they didn't have all the chemicals like they do nowadays. So they dyed my hair, and all of a sudden it all just started falling out. It was oh, like no. it was like I had no hair. It was like coming out in clumps. So they had no other choice but to cut it really, really short. Oh. So I had this really, really short hair, and then um, – Right after that, I got cast in Star Trek. And that's how I ended up with that haircut because it had all fallen out from, yeah. So that's the story of that. It's a great look. I mean, it's a great look. It's a great episode. And how was the shot? To work with. <laughs> you got to have a shot story. You know, I don't because everybody said, you know, he came on to you all. Cut your lines or something? Or? Well, they, you know, he was quite the, well, how should I put this? Mm-hmm. Skirt chaser? I don't know. I don't know. Did you get hit on? No, I didn't. Okay. And and so because, you know, those pictures of me when I have that horrible, you know, when I died, I look like I was a thousand years old. And so, no, he didn't come on to me, but he was very nice. But a lot of women said, you know, that he, he did like to hit on all the, the female guest stars, but that's our he, didn't, he didn't hit on me. We but wouldn't he, have it any yeah. other way. That's, <laughs> that's how that I want current. to remember that. Okay, but no, he, uh, yeah, he was... You mentioned Spider-Baby. i got to turn it over to the Monster Kid, because yeah. this is one strange it film. Is, you think? It is a very strange <laughs> film. It's almost ahead of its time in terms of the content. Yeah. Now, this movie came along a few years after you know the, the earlier films you had done. You'd said in the earlier movies, you, know, you were a kid. You were just you know, making a movie, you know? But yeah. at this point, you're a little bit more aware of what's going on, how movies are made, that sort of thing. Yeah. What was your thought? What did you first think when you found out about this film and started getting involved with it? Well, it came about in a very strange way because, you know, I had done Old Yeller and movies like that. I never did anything really out there. I mean, I I did One Step Beyond and Thriller and stuff like that, but I never played a killer (laughs) or anything like that. And so um, it was very bizarre. I was living in Hollywood, California at the time, and I was in a grocery store people who know LA it was called Ralph's Market so I'm in this grocery store and it seemed like every time I would turn a corner to go down an aisle there was this guy there and he was like staring at me and I I didn't know who he was so finally he comes up to me and he said I'm so sorry he said "I, I don't mean to be staring at you but you look very familiar aren't you an actress and I said yes and he goes well we're getting ready to do this film and there's a role in it that I think you would be right for and he said would you consider you know coming in and reading for the role and I said well what's the film and he said well it's at the time it wasn't called spider baby it had a different name it was going to be like the cannibal orgy or something like really bizarre and I went whoa (laughs) and so then he (laughs) said he said but it's with Lon Chaney and I went are you kidding me I was like oh my gosh Lon Chaney but I didn't know if he was for real because I'm in a grocery store you know and and it's Hollywood yeah and it's Hollywood (laughs) you know and and I'm thinking well typically like my agent would call and you know say you've got an audition or something but this was this man that I didn't know 
but then he said, um, do you have an agent? And I said, yes. And he said, well, have him call this number. You know, we're auditioning. So then it seemed like a little bit more, a little bit more legit. legit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, sure enough, a couple days later, um, they called for me to go. And that's when I met Jack Hill. They had a lot of girls there. They were trying to pair us up, you know, because they were the sisters and, right. of course, Sid Haig. And so that's when I met Jack Hill. So I read for the role, and then they would say, okay, you can leave. Now you come in with somebody else, and, we, you know, we were there most of the day. And then finally he said, okay, thank you. You can go. And I took that as a no. I thought, oh, I guess, you know, I didn't get it. So I was kind of bummed because I thought it would be really cool to work with Lon Chaney. And then I got the call the next day that I had gotten the role and that Jill Banner and I would be playing sisters and, you know, with Sid Haig. And I was just so thrilled to think that I could work with Lon Chaney and Mantan Moreland. And, mm-hmm. but it's such a quirky little crazy it film. Is. Yeah. It's like a very campy, you know, very tongue in cheek and a lot of dark uh, humor. Yeah, yeah. And they did the little innuendos like yeah. at the, the dining room table when Lon Chaney says there'll be a full moon tonight, you know, and stuff yes. like that. <laughs> And um, but we filmed it in like thirteen days, oh, wow. and um, I think the budget was like eleven dollars. <laughs> no, not really. No, but it was a very low budget. I think at the time it was maybe like sixty thousand dollars or something like that. Wow, you're not doing multiple and, takes uh, on these scenes. <laughs> no, this we did it really done. fast, yeah. and I had no idea at the time, you know, that it would like now. It's in fact, Jack Hill was just telling me that they're going to be coming out with action figures of us. It's like really. And they've got wow. dog tags and T-shirts and, you know, and it's like all over the Internet. And I'm just so happy to be a part of it because it's such a fun film. I mean, it's a strange movie, but it's campy and tongue in cheek. And um, it was such a fun film to do. And so it's really nice to be here at Monster Bash, too, you know, and have all the fans, you know, remember Spider-Baby. They bring it out at Halloween and stuff. They you know, and people say they've seen it like 20 times. I go, really? It's like, thanks. I don't get that. But it's just so nice. And then, of course, to see Jack Hill, too, you know, because sure. he lives in North Carolina and or South Carolina. I think it's North Carolina. And I live in Las Vegas. So we don't get to see each other really often, but we're in touch. And so it's really nice to be here and meet all of you and see all the people and Thank you for having me on your show and all oh, that. Oh, we appreciate it too. Is there anything else you need? You know, I was just going to say, you know, when you found out that Lon Chaney was in this film, you had an awareness of, of who this man was. Did oh, you have yeah. a favorite Chaney film? No, I, you know, I, I liked them all. I just, you know, not so much of the movies that he was in, but just getting to meet him, you yeah. know, was a big thrill. I had done a thriller, and of course I was a fan of Boris Karloff too, but... Boris Karloff wasn't in the episode that I did, but he was the, you know, the host. And so I got to meet him, and he was a very tall, menacing-looking man, but he was very nice. But to see him, he was, you know, kind of scary-looking. So that was a thrill, too. So I I just, you know, I'm so grateful and so blessed to have been able to work with the people that I did, you know, the Loretta Young and Jack Benny and Kirk Douglas and, you know, all those wonderful people Lou Costello and um, I'm yeah, just yeah I mean you, we, yeah. Off, off mic you were telling me just uh, the, the name of the film you worked on it, it was in the solo years in with who Lou Costello yeah with Lou Costello yeah it was yeah, an it, episode it of Wagon of, Train right. you know Wagon Train with Ward Bond yeah. and uh, it was an episodic TV show and it's and, online and yeah uh, his acting 
he, they, what were, you yeah. and I were talking about is that he, Bud Abbott and Lucas L don't get credit for their acting. I know. They, and you watch yeah. this piece, and it is. He was Fantastic, wonderful, yeah. yeah. And I, of course, I was a big Abbott and Costello fan too. And meeting him and working with him, it, it was such a joy. He was the nicest man, and he was so wonderful in the role. And do you remember the George Burns, the Burns and Allen show, and Harry Von Zell was the announcer. Mm-hmm. Harry Von Zell actually wrote the episode. Oh. He um, had written, I think, four or five episodes of Wagon Train, and he's also in the episode. So that was fun to meet him too. So yeah, it's a great watch if you. If you haven't seen thank it, you. Be, uh, check it out. Uh, and it's a thrill for us uh, to have you on the show. Aww, I mean, this thanks. has been fun so, to kind of go you. back through and have a great time at Monster Bash I'm this having weekend. a ball. Everybody here is so nice and so welcoming. And this is my first time here. And thank you for including me on your show, yeah. too. Well, it's really well, nice to meet both of you. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Thank and you. And I'm sure we'll run into you again a few more times over the bash. Cause <laughs> thank you. I hope so. There's a lot so. going on. There's yeah, a lot going, there's a lot going on. It's really fun. Thank Beverly you so Washburn, much. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Two notes I want to bring up. First of all, if you haven't read Beverly Washburn's book, you're missing out. It's called Real Tears. Real as in film. Real Tears. You can find it on Amazon. You know, I'm going to go ahead and put a link to that in our Amazon page, which you can get to over at monsterkidradio.net. Check that book out. It's got great stories. You liked what you heard in the interview? Well, you're going to love the book because it's just filled with all sorts of wonderful stories about her time in Hollywood. Second point. If you have not been over to Comic Book Central, check out last week's episode because Joe ran bits and pieces of this interview in his last episode of Comic Book Central. And he included a bit that I chose not to include here. It made more sense to run over at Comic Book Central. So if you want to hear about Beverly Washburn's experience filming The Lone Ranger and you want to find out what The Lone Ranger really wears under his costume, well, just go over to comicbookcentral.net to check that out and tell him that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Universal Unite, or something like that. I'm trying real hard to come up with a catchphrase to apply to the news that came out regarding Universal Pictures' announcement that they want to bring their classic monsters back and unite them under one banner into one shared continuity, a sort of universe taking the Marvel approach, I suppose. The people that are involved in making this happen are Chris Morgan and Alex Kurtman. Now, Chris Morgan, I believe, is the guy who's been involved with the TV show Sleepy Hollow on Fox. And Alex Kurtzman, he was involved in the Star Trek reboot that came out a couple of years ago. And then his follow-up. And then I believe he's also involved in the third one that's coming down the line. The internet seems weighted toward one side. And that side is that, no, this is a terrible terrible idea i have seen a few websites like over at horror society where they're excited they want to see this happen i can't tell why they're excited other than they just want to see more monsters and of course i want to see more monsters too i want to see the classics brought back to the screen my concern my fear is is that they're not going to do it quote unquote right and that's really hard for me to define. I mean, what's the right way to do this? The right way, as far as Universal is concerned, is to make some money. They're a studio. They're a business. I get that. They want to exploit these characters. And if they are able to bring back the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, that sort of thing, and make them more relevant and put out more material, more media, more merchandise, and they don't have Bella Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr. or Sr. or Boris Karloff's families to deal with when it comes to likenesses, well, that's a win for them. I don't understand the approach that they want to unite all of these characters under one roof as if it's never been done before. Well, technically, 
Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, Bride of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and if you really want to stretch it, the Invisible Man, because he appeared in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, they already exist under one roof, under one banner. They already exist in a shared world. And I've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again, the novel Return of the Wolfman by Jeff Rovin does bring them all together under one shared roof. Unfortunately, as great as it is, as much as I love it, spawned two sequels that were just awful. Not written by the original author, but they're terrible. And it is another continued attempt to bring the other monsters in the pantheon into one shared continuity. I mean, Dracula's daughter, I guess it's technically part of the continuity because Dr. Van Helsing shows up in both. But I don't think Universal has proven that they can do this successfully, organically. These two novels that came out are an example of this not working out. They licensed some other novels uh, not too long ago through Dark Horse, and they chose not to incorporate the big monsters that they did these novels about into one shared universe, which made for a very disjointed reading experience. So, I don't know, maybe they're going to try something different. Do I want to live in a world in which the Gilman and Dracula have the potential of meeting up? Well, I kind of already do live in that world because I've watched the movie The Monster Squad over and over again. It's one of my favorite films from the 80s. It's one of my favorite films, period. So I've already seen them brought together. I don't know how Universal is going to pull this off, especially since some of these monsters are just flat-out villainous like Dracula. Some of them are kind of misunderstood like Frankenstein's monster, and some of them are cursed like the Wolfman. He's a bad guy when the full moon's out, but he's not really trying to be a bad guy when the full... You know, I just don't know how they're going to pull this off. And as far as Kurtzman and Morgan's involvement, one of them is behind the Fast and the Furious series. Another one's also involved in the Transformers series. So they know how to manipulate big-budget projects and make a lot of money, so I don't know. Is it going to be all sizzle and no steak? We'll find out. And while I'm withholding a little bit of judgment, I'm still very, very cautious about this whole thing. Now, Chris McMillan, who's been on Monster Kid Radio repeatedly in the past, has a website called The Shadow Over Portland over at shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. He's already posted his thoughts about this whole thing. I recommend you guys and gals go check that out. I want to hear what the rest of the Monster Kid Radio listeners think about this announcement. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Do you just don't care? I want to know what you guys and gals think, so give me a call. Leave me a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or shoot me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Let me know what you think about this, and we'll turn this into a future episode here on Monster Kid Radio. We'll call it another Monster Kid editorial, and we'll include your thoughts on this announcement. And as we learn more, we'll share that here on the show. That's about it here for this episode of Monster Kid Radio. A big thanks to Joe Stuber and especially Beverly Washburn. And why not? Big thanks to the Monster Bash gang. Because without Monster Bash, I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have had a chance to meet Beverly or Joe or Joel Hodgson or Arch Hall Jr. or anybody that I met at Monster Bash. And I hope you've enjoyed our coverage of the convention. I think we're just about done talking about Monster Bash here at Monster Kid Radio. Next week, I'm going to ask you to cross your reptilian fingers that this is going to work out. Kyle Yount from the Kaiju cast is going to be here on Monster Kid Radio. We're going to talk about a franchise of films don't necessarily take place in the 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, but it definitely has a place here on the show. And we're going to talk about his Kickstarter campaign, the Hail to the King 60 Years of Destruction documentary that he's trying to get off the ground. So we're going to talk about that with him next week on Monster Kid Radio. After that, we're going to have an interview with a guy who lives here in Oregon who's putting together a one-man play entitled... Karloff. 
Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song, Where's Captain Kirk? That belongs to the Nick Adams. It appears on their album in the 25th century. You can download it over at thenickadams.com. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody next week. Enterprise. What I felt, what I saw was a total surprise I looked around and wondered what could this be Or is this the start of my insanity Oh, but it's true As we went, warp factor two And I met all of the crew Where's a Captain Kirk? Where's a Captain Kirk? Went to the bridge and was tossed about In a storm of a vortex I was hit with a doubt I saw in a dream in a memory of mine Was it with you or was it all in time? The spark pulled me through as we went Whoop factor two And I saw someone I knew Where's a Captain Kirk? Where's a Captain Kirk? Space made a change in me, for I was the captain and the captain was me. Yes, it's so true. As we went, one factor two. Man, the changes that I've been through. As a captain, Kirk, I'm a captain, Kirk. Oh, it's so true. As we went, one factor. 
changes that I've been through as a captain. Damn it, Jim!